You're listening to a Comics XF podcast. Lazowitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast, where each week my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on the big board, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Will, how are you doing tonight? Yay, I'm doing great. It is our final show before Christmas, which means that the uh, the people out there are getting this probably around St. Patrick's Day. Um, so I'll ask you this, you know, Wednesdays are our pub run nights. It's a big group, about a hundred people. I got some of us together to get our organizers some nice Christmas gifts. One of them being, and these are for Alabama fans. Uh, I got them a signed copy of Bear Bryant's autobiography and, uh, you know, Bear Bryant isn't, uh, isn't around signing books these days. So it was uh, not the easiest thing to come by. Let me ask you this. What has been your favorite gift that you have ever given? Ooh, given. I will cut out the silence surrounding this <laughs> as I sit back and I think of things I've gotten my parents and my brothers and my partners. And oh, last year, this is a, this is a, this might be some recency bias in here. Yeah, but. For friend of the show, my other podcasting partner, Dan Grote, I commissioned a, wow, how am I forgetting words? This is this doesn't bode well for the night if I'm custom. That's the word I'm looking for. A custom Funko Pop of Pete Wisdom, the obscure mutant character that Dan and I love and that the WMQ Patreon Dan does the bonus show about that actually had like painted like hot knife fingers and the whole nine yards. It was something that I just, I wanted to do because it struck me as just the perfect weird little gift that nobody else would get Dan. Absolutely. Uh, that one Funko pop is the only acceptable one. Amber was also piping up that that was the, this also fell at the 30th anniversary of Dan and I meeting. So Aww. it was the, like the, the double, now we do have a guest and as will springs these on me we're gonna spring it on our guest oh surprise it's, josh it's josh wheel welcome back patreon backer friend of the show josh wheel thank you so do you have a specific gift you remember giving that is the gift i think the one that stands out the most to me was when my older son david who wants to be a marine biologist. I got him one year a megalodon tooth. And his just overall, like he knew what it was immediately. There was no explanation needed. And his just excitement, love was palpable. It was um, probably the the best right there. Prehistoric awesome. shark watch. I also... Another one that does spring some just sprang to mind. This is a few years back. Tracked down a signed copy of one of Robert B. Parker's Spencer novels. My dad is a huge, huge Parker fan. 
And Parker hadn't passed away at this point, but I literally stumbled across a bookstore where Parker had done a signing. And it was like, well, yeah, I bought it and I sat on it and it was my dad's birthday present. And he was just blown away because he was not anticipating this. I don't think there's a segue out of this into tonight. So this, as you said, this is our last recording before Christmas. And so my brain is, is a little mush because if you don't know the Christmas show that any theater does, this is the one that lets you do all the experimental stuff you want to do later in the season. So there's a lot I've been having to do the past couple of weeks, and my brain is, is doing its best to get out of work mode and into fun mode. And it's, it's taken a little more than it usually does. But here I am. I'm happy. I got two good friends, and we got some comics to talk about. They are certainly comics. Yeah, our third week in a row, as we were saying before in the pre-show chat, of real superhero comics with Batman versus more Batman stories. Because Josh is on, and Josh has requested three stories where Batman gets superpowers. So we're starting with the book that Josh specifically requested, which is Foreign Bodies. This is JLA Foreign Bodies. It's a one-shot. The writer is Len Kaminsky. The pencils by Val Simaics. Inks by Prentice Rollins. Colors by John Callis. Letters by Bill Oakley. And edited by Dan Raspler. The cover date is August of 1999. A psychic attack by a member of the Cult of Cobra has led to many members of the Justice League switching bodies. The League must learn how to handle their new forms while saving the world from a series of disasters, all while trying to figure out what angle Cobra is playing. I will add, this is the only book of the night without a problematic creator watch, so that's a point in its favor right there. Woohoo! That absolutely is. Um, and if it sounds like Freaky Friday with superheroes, that's basically what it is. 60 pages of that. In and out. I like this. I think this does a fun job of doing a lot with the characters. And I think the choices of who swaps into whose body made for some of the more interesting combinations. I had that exact same thing in my notes. This is the one I wanted. You mentioned a couple months back that you were planning an episode around uh, Batman with superpowers. And I texted you right away that um, we're doing foreign bodies and I want in. I was a little nervous before opening it because I had very fond memories of it. And I was worried that this was going to be something that I would revisit and um, be disappointed by. But I was not. This is just as fun as I remembered. And yeah, in terms of those pairings, there are very well thought out character engagements here. And so many characters in something that we will not be able to say in the other two stories so many characters have unique voices and are given agency in this in just 60 pages it manages to get around you know it has uh, an amazing gut punch scene at the end with oracle that's three panels and <laughs> gives her more agency than a number of other or you know bigger oracle stories ever do in you know however many pages I thought this had the best pacing 
of the night. Um, you know, it wastes no time. It jumps right into the body swap within the first couple pages. The book opens, they go out on the mission, bam. And I couldn't help but think, because I read these in a different order this week. So I read a Jeff Johns story first, which is not something that I, you know, someone who tries to practice self-care is not something I do to myself very <laughs> often. But um, I could not help but think that, like, if this was a Jeff Johns story, like, it would have taken a minimum of two issues before, like, we finished with the explosion that gave the body swap. It would have been paced out so long. And, you know... You're in right away. It hits its points. It's, it's one oversized, but quick, easy read. It doesn't slog at all. Now, for the uh, listeners out there who might be looking to read this, uh, it is not available digitally. But uh, used copies can be had for cheap. Um, I got mine for not much. You mentioned the Oracle bit at the end. I thought that was wildly out of place. She's not featured as a character much throughout. She just pops up, I, from what I remember, at the beginning. And then she pops up at the end, basically just being bitter. How dare you know you put in my mind the thought that I might be able to uh, be swapped into the body of, uh, of someone who is not handicapped? And it just, the, the tone just seemed off to me. And especially that just coming right at the end. It was a strange choice for my reading of it. So this was during the Morrison era of JLA, um, which is kind of most clearly told by the fact that Zoriel is a member who um, I loved from back then and was super excited to see again. Zoriel, the uh, fallen angel that one day you'll do the story where the Justice League fight God. And I hope they kill him. But so Oracle was a member after you guys did the one with Prometheus. After the Prometheus arc, Oracle became a member in there. And this was also at a time when, you know, we never thought we'd see Batgirl again. You know, Barbara in the chair was the status quo for a long time. And I I don't know. I I like what it did. The fact that, you know, she was on the outside of this looking in and then that she had to have these thoughts of, did he deliberately not include me? You know, what would it have been like, you know, to be in the Flash's body, to have been able to run or walk or fly again? And then, God, would I even have wanted that? Because that means trapping one of them in my... But like, I, I felt like it gave her a unique voice that was, you know, true for the character at this time. Um, and I, I could be wrong on that. I could also be wrong. That's very frequently the, the case here. It came off as a little too bitter to me. That's That's the tone in which I read it. I'm trying to remember where this is in relation to what period of Birds of Prey, because this is still very much at the beginning of Birds of Prey. Birds, this was, as I said, cover date of August of 99. Birds of Prey launched, I believe, in late 98. No, January of 99. So Barbara is still coming out of her darkest period. She's just becoming a member, a full member of the Bat family again. This is during No Man's Land. It's being released during No Man's Land. It doesn't feel like it's taking those events into account. 
I can see where you're coming from, Will, not having where Barbara is as a character at that place. A Barbara, even a year later, it would be much more out of character. Barbara in No Man's Land was a bitter character. If you remember, she stayed, you guys have read the stuff where she stayed yep. behind um, and she was in there. And, you know, Bruce left, but she stayed. But you haven't gotten to the point where, you know, she recognizes that it's Huntress wearing the Batgirl costume. And she's like, fuck that. Like, um, yeah, she's not over that. She's right. she's not ready for someone else to be Batgirl yet. And I think coming out of No Man's Land, taking Cassandra under her wing, the Birds of Prey becoming a fuller part of her existence makes her open back up and i think she isn't quite there at this point in her arc but the seeming batman superman swap is the obvious one you put batman in superman's body and that makes for interesting storytelling i hated that twist the final twist the seemingly that Superman... Superman was not in Batman's body. I'm assuming. Yeah. Yeah. That was that was like putting a hat on a hat on a hat. I just I didn't care for it. Really? Because I think that's perfect because it, it shows that Cobra is everything that Batman said he was. They set it up that he creates these overly elaborate, insane Rube Goldberg device plans it's foreshadowed multiple times throughout and it's it's great because you get the you know there's two great parts in here i think that show a, a strong understanding of batman and superman by the writer there's for batman which i think this is of the three stories does the best job of the idea of batman with powers you know oracle asks him you know what's it like having superman's powers and Batman goes, exhilarating, dangerous. The temptation to fall back on the powers instead of relying on skill, training, and intellect could easily lead to an erosion of judgment. I'll be glad to be rid of them when this is over. Meanwhile, he's also like divvying up the team and he's sending them off in pairs of two to handle one disaster at a time while he is just taking care of like seven at a time. Like if you look at the list and who he sends off, like he sends them off in pairs of two to deal with three of the like eight uh, emergencies that he names off. And then you have the other way with Superman, you know, the, the final battle in the garden, you know, where Cobra underestimates Superman because he thinks that, you know, by having those powers, he's never had to really learn to fight. Not recognizing that for Superman, you know, he has all the experience of fighting and now can just unleash that he he can actually like just full out throw punches and haymakers in a way he never is able to. That I think kind of showed... It allowed you to see the side of each of them you don't normally get, Batman with powers and Superman without, and how they're still both heroes. And for the the other ones that we see, I loved Kyle Rayner in Martian Manhunter's body because it initially sets up that Kyle doesn't know how to handle this, but when he finally realizes, oh, shape-shifting is just willpower... It, then he it, turns himself into a Thark from John Carter of Mars. Which was phenomenal. And is so in character. Especially looking back, as we've talked about them before, you know, the Pulp Heroes annuals, 
the Kyle Rayner one is a John Carter pastiche. So you know Kyle is familiar with that stuff. And I like visually, you can see Kyle like struggling with it. Like at the very beginning, he's like a puddle of snakes. And then he gets uh, a little less lumpy. And then finally, Rainer's, you know able to hold himself together. Some good visuals in there. Yeah, I think you got some good for a lot of them. You know, you got to see Steel as Green Lantern, you know, having to recognize it as blueprints and, you know, a very different visual design in the way he was making the constructs. Aquaman being forced to recognize how hostile the sea is. There were a number of good beats in small scenes for uh, for each of the characters, except Plastic Man. Shut up, Plastic Man, which is a joke that was run into the ground. I will also say when the body swapped happened, as I remembered Batman, Superman, Cobra, I remembered that bit. I didn't remember all of the other swaps. And I was like, the idea of anyone else in Wonder Woman's body, I was real worried this was going to get heavily, heavily transphobic real fast. And it doesn't. There's a few jokes that are a little bit much, but the stuff where they discuss that really is about being uncomfortable in the body you're in, which... Plastic Man tries to point out, like, the booby stuff, and they shut him up, and, you know, then the main focus just becomes on, like, look, it's a different body. Like, you have a different center of gravity. And I think kind of handled a little more respectfully, responsibly. I think if this had been two or three years earlier, this would have been much more uncomfortable. But I think we were starting to get to a point where those jokes were getting... A little less. It's not Ace Ventura. Yes, exactly. It's handled better than I was worried it might have been going in. Here's the thing I think was the, for me, defining and really exemplifying how strong the character work was in this and how unique each character's voice was, is that in the final act, they're just all in battle. Right. And there's no little like headers reminding you who's who. So you're looking at Martian Manhunter, but by the dialogue and the voice and the way it's written, you know, it's Kyle Rayner. You're looking at Aquaman. Right. And, you know, who is an Aquaman body again? Martian Manhunter. It's Martian Martian Manhunter. Manhunter. Right. And you can tell it's Martian Manhunter. Like you're looking at, you know, so even though you're seeing the different characters drawn as they normally would be in any JLA fight from the dialogue it reads clearly for me like there was no confusion or jumble in there like it read very clearly and you could tell from each voice which character even though they were in a different body um, which I thought is a pretty deft hand here especially you know a very large cast of characters in a not very long story the one gag that I particularly got a kick out of, and again, I think it's funny, we talked about this a little bit off mic, that Josh, things when Josh picks stories, it seems like various characters kind of come in and out, that we did Underworld Unleashed with you, and here we have the trickster popping up again, in a great little gag where it's like, oh, we have to stop these neo, these lame-ass neo-Nazis who have a cold fusion bomb. And it's Wally, who's in Steel's body and who doesn't have the technical know-how on how to shut this thing down, gets in touch with Trickster because at this point Trickster is semi-reformed. And in the end, it's like, oh yeah, I sold that to them. 
It's a dud. Does it have an orange and black wire? Good news. And it's a, a great trickster moment. And it's a great Wally West moment from this era because this is when Wally is probably second only to Dick Grayson as the guy with the most friends in the superhero community and outside the superhero community. So it's a nice touch using that extended Flash family here. I also think that there is at least a backward little shot across the bow when the Justice League initially run into this psychic who will wind up accidentally, quote unquote accidentally, but as it turns out, all part of Cobra's plan, swapping their bodies. It's trying to play on all of their fears. And in Batman's delusion, the Joker is saying, oh, I killed your parents. And that was like, that's just ridiculous. Well, little shots fired at 89. A little bit. Just, just a little bit. I like this story because, as you said, this is, for me, my favorite Justice League. And this is not Morrison, but this is someone who gets the stuff that Morrison was doing. And Kaminsky, while a fairly big creator in the comics field, is mostly known for Marvel work. So I don't remember a lot of his work for DC. He's best known as the co-creator of War Machine. He did a big long run on Iron Man. So for someone just sort of coming in to this universe, he really has a good feel for this. He did a few series in this era for DC, but they were all weird side series, you know, a Challenges of the Unknown series, a Creeper series, Fate, bunches of little Justice League side projects, but nothing major. And so I was I was pretty pleased to see how well this story worked. I think I'm good. Uh, I ain't got nothing else. Josh, you got something else? I mean, I, I think this will compare well with other books on the list because I think it, it says something about Batman that not... Many of the other stories are kind of able to or willing to 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 step out in that voice. So I I, I am optimistic. On that note of optimism, that means it's time for JLA foreign bodies on the big board. We have three hundred and fifty-one stories on the big board. Damn. Number one is the post-crisis origin of Batman, Batman Year One. Number 50 is Identity Crisis, not that one. The story where Tim Drake takes up the mantle of Robin, officially. Still, at a family-friendly 69, it's Batman and Robin and Howard. At 100 is the first Legends of the Dark Knight Halloween special. At 150 is Bread and Circuses, the third arc of No Man's Land. At 200 is Night of the Monster Men, the rebirth-era Hugo Strange and the Monster Men story. 250 is Major Arcana, the Joker Etrigan arc of Batman. 300 is the Bruce Wayne not-super graphic novel. And all the way down at the bottom, 351, it's Curse of the White Knight. 
Because it sucks. And throw out an, an opening offer. Okay. I like it better than Killing Joke. Most things are better than Killing Joke. Unfortunately, not on your list, though. It is only where it is because of its place in history. If it was yeah. if it was put out today, it would be much, much lower. Uh, but I still implore everyone out there, stop making references to Killing Joke. Stop with that goddamn Hawaiian shirt. Stop all of it. If we ignore Killing Joke, we can pretend that it didn't happen. So, Will, you're the one who's obviously the coldest on this of the three of us. Look, I am absolutely 100% burned the fuck out on League Stories. I am exhausted. If I read one more League Story uh, of superheroes being infested, superheroes being confused with each other, I am, I am, I'm very tired and I need to go to bed, Matt. So I think this is the story of the night, but I'm I'm not going to fight you. I'm not going to fight you. Just because this thing hit me on a bad week, I think it's it's perfectly lovely. Um, the 60 pages are very nice when compared to some of the other stories. It did not exhaust me as some of the other ones have, but it's it's hit me in a bad stretch. We can so, gleefully stomp the shit out of the final story together. Oh, so um, I'm I'm not going to fight you. Wherever you it think is, this goes is where it should go. It's definitely in the hundreds. It is well above 200. It is well above Night of the Monster Men. And, and, and look, I'll, I'll say this. The idea of like body swapping is more novel than superhero corrupting by outside malevolent force. Uh, because the last couple of stories we've read are just basically zombie stories. Um, so this one is at least different in that respect. And I think gets the characters better than either of the other two stories do. Yeah. And there's no Lex Luthor here, which is which is a big, big plus. Just leave that those particular versions of Lex as they're uh... as he is presented in these books. I'm looking around that that killing joke area and I'm torn on that. Player on the other side might be a ceiling for me at 122. Yeah. All right, Josh, this was another one from 126, Final Night. I like this better than Final Night. Yeah. And I think it captures Batman better than Final Night does. Final Night is up that high because of how, despite it being this mammoth crossover, it deals with grounded human reaction and emotion better than most crossovers do but batman is pretty out of character in there and more than one point my spot i think is right up is either right above final night or maybe above terminus but i don't think it beats fear for sale at 124 i want to say right below terminus new 126 sounds good to me all right, new 126 it is. Our second story of the night is The Enemies Among Us. This is Superman Batman Volume 1, numbers 28 to 33. The writer is Mark Verheiden. 
with pencils by Ethan Van Skyver, Matthew Clark, Ron Randall, and Joe Benitez. Inks by Van Skyver, Mario Alquiza, Andy Lanning, Don Hillsman, and Victor Lamas. Colors by Chris Chuckery and Guy Major. Letters by Rob Lee and edited by Eddie Berganza, Janine Schaefer, and Adam Schlagman. The cover dates are September of 2006 to March of 2007. Alien allies and enemies, appearing in forms they have not had in years, are attacking Batman and Superman. An alien intelligence seems to be affecting all non-terrestrial beings on Earth. And as it draws nearer, Superman may be its next victim. Start out, problematic creator watch on both Ethan Van Skyver, the poster child for Comicsgate. Noted online shithead. Yep, and noted sex creep Eddie Berganza. So that that's always a not a great place to start. Yeah, real heroes on this one. I was struck by this book's placement as this is the first real arc on this book after that initial Loeb McGinnis various Turner Pacheco arc run ended that there's a one-off a couple one-offs and then this so Verheiden was the first writer given what was at this point one of DC's highest profile books I had very fond memories of reading this Superman Batman series I picked them up in trade Back around 2006, 2007, around this time this had come out. And so this one hadn't been in trade yet. And I really enjoyed them. Um, Very enjoyable comics. A couple of them were made into animated movies. Um, You know, the the first two arcs, the um, Public Enemies and the Supergirl arc. And so I was excited for this one because like, oh, this is that Batman Superman run that I really enjoyed. That was so good. It's not, though. No, (laughs) Loeb's run on this book is widescreen superheroics. And some of the stuff later on leans into that as well. This is trying to do widescreen superheroics, but it is, for one, so overly narrated. My first note in my notes is two issues in, we have no idea what the fuck is going on. Pacing. Good God. Yeah. Everyone here knows I love Alfred. Love Alfred. But we love Alfred. Good God. The Alfred journaling narration here does not help anything in this story. It does not feel like it's there for any reason other than... Verheiden wanted to have Alfred narrate this, and he's not even really narrating the story. He's just giving observations about who Batman is. And I don't think Verheiden's handle on Batman is that great. Particularly, I mean, the scene where Batman gets his powers is super questionable off character like what the fuck just happened especially because batman at that moment when he has to take quote-unquote has to take this the black rock this possessing force that was introduced by verheiden in his very brief run on superman 
Batman is at that moment in one of Lex Luthor's LexCorp buildings. And his reasoning is this is the only way I'm going to be able to stand up against Kryptonians. You're in a LexCorp building. These things are wall-to-wall anti-Kryptonian weapons. There were any number of other options to deal with Kryptonians in a LexCorp facility. I mean, nah, yeah. nah, I'm just going to fuck with this uh, mysterious alien rock that's going to possess me. Yeah. So, what is Batman more likely to do? Give up total control of his mind and faculties or use a gun? The fact that you're thinking about it, to like the, how off character like that moment was. I, I think I'm going to go with the third option and just say die. I honestly think that might, yeah. Go down swinging. Right. The answer is he's Batman and he would find option C. I mean, I mean, he's always looking for a good death and, you know, dying in the face of an unwinnable battle without resorting to things that would compromise his character. That seems like a good death to me. Well, Verheiden went with the compromise the character at. Yeah, you can do that when you're writing stories, apparently for DC. This starts out on an incredibly sour note because right off the bat, Verheiden doesn't get how Bruce Wayne works. Because <laughs> it's like, okay, Alfred's initial narration that when he comes back from these Bruce Wayne functions, he's exhausted. That I'm okay with. So I think, yes, this is not what he's used to. But him being this surly ass at this charity function and Lucius Fox treating that like it's the way it normally is, is completely wrong. That is not the Bruce Wayne persona. The Bruce Wayne persona is vapid. The Bruce Wayne persona is, you know, wandering around and he wouldn't have just charged off. He would have found some excuse that is within that character. Oh, I think I had a little too much to drink. I need to to go. Oh, well, but he just felt that something was wrong, Matt. He felt that something was wrong. Was this also the story in which Bruce says to Alfred, oh, I never drink in the cave? Yes. Uh, Bruce Wayne doesn't drink. So Verheiden is mostly a screenwriter. He wrote that tracks. The, ma- the, the Mask. He wrote various other movies, but he was one of the head writers and I think showrunner on the first three seasons of Smallville, which would have been pretty big at this point. Because Smallville would have launched in 0102 and we're in 06. So we're within those first four-ish seasons of Smallville. So that's how he got into DC. He wrote Superman for about a year in the run-up to Infinite Crisis. It was during a brief period where he was on Superman, Rucka was on Adventures, and Gail Simone was on Action. So the other two books were really good. Rucka Adventures run was, that's some good shit. There are one or two writers who get Lois Lane as well as Greg Rucka. The way he wrote Superman and Lois in that run was so good. And anyone who's like, well, you know, you can't do interesting stories when Superman and Lois are married, read the Rucka run. 
And if you can't see the value of the two of them married after reading that run, you're wrong. I rarely say that. I usually am like, you know, every opinion is valid. But if you can't see the value of a married Lois and Clark after reading Greg Rucka's Adventures of Superman, you are flat out wrong. But this story is not that. No, you've got just so many weird call outs. And often when you've got these stories that are calling in all of these different characters, it's like, okay, I can see a writer who doesn't think he's going to have a lot of chances to write more DC stories using every character that he possibly can. You know what, Titano the Super Ape? Yes, a giant gorilla with kryptonite vision? Sure, great. But who in their right mind is like, yes, Zook, Martian Manhunter's weird-ass alien sidekick? I remembered a thing. That's all the writing is there. It's like, oh, 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 I remembered a thing. References. We, as a culture... He made a bouncing baby boy reference just for you. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) As a culture, we need to stop accepting references as content and story. And he clearly doesn't seem to get Plastic Man and Batman's relationship as Batman is treating Plastic Man like the stuff on the bottom of his boot. And while, yes, Plaz and Bruce don't connect on some levels because Plaz is such a goof and Bruce is Bruce, Bruce still respects especially as we're further down the line from that period of Justice League, Plastic Man as a member of the Justice League. And so here, it's he seems to be like, yeah, we met once in, you know, one of those big crossover scene moments, and that's my only interaction with this guy. And it seems just off. And again, I know who Ultra the Multi-Alien is, but why are we spending multiple pages with Ultra the Multi-Alien? Also, these needed editor's note boxes. And this is also that period where Martian Manhunter is in that god-awful, like, blue costume with the the Martian head, the, the post-52 leading up to his death in Final Crisis costume, where he's also distant from humanity to begin with. I had forgotten how this goes later on. Initially, when I was reading that first scene between Martian Manhunter and Bruce, and yeah, Bruce comes at him way too hard for someone who is one of his closer friends in the superhero community. But even then, Jean's reaction was harsh. And I was like, oh yeah, that was the way they were writing the character at the time, which is true, but it also factors in this affecting influence The moment that is really completely out of Batman character, other than the one we already brought up, which is also Batman decides, oh yeah, I happen to have a mini nuke. I'm going to hook it up to this ship full of sentient aliens that is hovering above Metropolis and I'm going to nuke it. Yeah, I might kill all of the sentient beings in the ship and all the fallout and stuff will crush metropolis but you know i'm batman that's what i do and superman has to give him a speech about the sanctity of life yuck yeah uh, by the way you you, neither of you could probably hear it but upon hearing me say that from the other room i hear amber go what yeah even amber knows that is stupid 
Um, stupid, stupid, stupid. Uh, Jimmy Olsen punched out Batman. That's a thing that happened. Yep. And we get Luthor at some of his more obnoxious here. Not as bad as the next story. I was just going to say, it's not the most obnoxious one tonight. <laughs> but Luthor here, when writing a really good Lex Luthor, there's a fine balance to be found where he's not completely mustache twirly. And here, the moment where he's he's got Plastic Man with this, this black rock in him, and he's running electricity through him to try to get the thing to fall off because it'll the the parasite will abandon the host if it thinks that the host is going to die and luther's like just tell me when he's dead i've got to go and meet with the board no mr o'brien i expect you to die yes <laughs> yes i've spoken on this show and in a lot of my writing that i appreciate villains who are just villains in a lot of cases i don't want joker's motivation i don't need a lot of the bat rogues to have pathos because they're just broken and evil. Luthor is one of the villains who honest to God believes he's right, that he's doing the right thing. He is completely and truly the hero of his own story. He should not be written as a mustache twirling mwahaha Bond villain. Luthor and Doom need to be written in the same way. And if you don't write Dr. Doom that way, Dr. Doom is always has this sort of inner nobility. Luthor is always doing this stuff to make the world safer for humanity. And I think that was trying to get at that but the, the details of how he was written made him just look like a petty villain. And two, when we're expecting him to do something bad, and this is more of a problem in our last story, but it is exhausting waiting for that shoe to drop. I'm like, we can clearly see where the story is going. Everyone on the page is just screaming about how, oh, Luther can't be trusted. Luther's a liar. Oh, turns out he was lying the whole time. I'm shocked. Fucking especially, shocked. Especially when both of these final two stories were multiple issues longer than they should have been. Oh, oh boy. This was six issues that should have been three. Yeah. You did not need to pad out the shapeshifter, Zook stuff. It should have been one issue of them dealing with the shapeshifter, one issue of them dealing with the Black Rock and one issue of the alien invasion. I mismathed when I was first looking at it and I thought it was five issues. And when I got to the fifth issue and it wasn't the last one, I was like, oh my fucking God. Damn it. And also <laughs> the art does not help. Nope. I mean, listen, I'm not a big Van Skyver barring his the fact that he is a you know monster of a human being his art in general is okay matthew clark who they got to come in right after him is in a similar style but less good but less good and then you but then you get ron randall and joe benitez who don't look much at all like that in the last chapter and a half 
and it's just discordant. And in the end, it's like, oh, and it's the sparrow behind the whole thing. Really? Why did we need the sparrow? Why mm-hmm. couldn't this have just been aliens who the Black Rock was their probe? Despero convinced these aliens to convince other aliens to brainwash the aliens on Earth so that way they would kill all the humans? Possess Earth? all the humans? I mean, it's they were talking about killing them, but then it was just like, you know, we're going to take them over. And throughout the whole thing, they're like, why in the world were they like, oh, yes, we're going to keep Lex Luthor alive because he can tell us how to kill Superman. You know how to kill Superman. Everybody knows how to kill Superman. In these last two stories, you can't think about them too hard. They fall apart real quick. Well, the writers didn't, so... I will say there is a line in here early on when Luther is asked about how he ever got elected and um, he comments on the intelligence of the American electorate that has inadvertently aged like fine wine. There's a couple little things I like. One of them is just me. I I love when Starfire talks like she does in Teen Titans Go. So he definitely was miswriting Corey, but in the way that I find adorable. I like when someone called Supergirl cute and she said, kittens are cute. I'm not a kitten. And I think those are all my positive notes. It's more than I'll have for the final story. And we get to Mm. the end and it ends as if Batman and Superman weren't friends. And this is the story that made Batman realize that Superman was his friend. And it's like, if this were 1989, maybe. This is 06. We've been through Morrison's JLA. We've been through Wade's JLA. We've been through two years of Batman Superman where they were working hand in hand. 20 years post-crisis. Yeah, exactly. 1996, maybe you could have pulled this off because that's right around the beginning of the Morrison Justice League. But after that run, they were friends again. This is at the same time as that annual we love so much. Stop me if you've heard this one down at 345. Yeah, this isn't going to be quite that low, but... Uh... But, I mean, you, you see the the brain trust, you know, wh- what they're doing with the series at this point, post the, you know, the low broad. Is this one of those like, hey, you know, this book will sell no matter who we put on it. We'll go back. We will cover that the Loeb, McGinnis, Loeb, Turner, Loeb, Pacheco run. And that I remember, as you said, Josh, that's really enjoyable. But a lot of the stuff after that is wildly inconsistent. But I think we're probably good on this one. Oh, that means it's time. But Superman, Batman, enemies among us on the big board. This is not problematic. No, um, so, but it's not great either. Um, right. 250-ish? Well, I, I think that's, that. that is in that area of meh. Meh town. Yeah. yeah. I had written down, is it better than Officer Down? Which is, I think, just a little bit above that. And honestly, I had a question mark on it because I'm like, I don't know. I could be swayed either way. Uh, Officer Down is at 235. Officer Down has a better core concept and has a couple of good issues. And if they had 
focused more on the core concept and less on all the weird stuff with Catwoman, it would be a better story. I mean, I think, for instance, Josh, 238 is that first arc of Young Justice from one of your earlier episodes. That is also six issues. I would sooner reread those six issues than these six issues. Facts. Easy. I'm looking, if I go a little further down, you have uh, Snapper Car Super Trader, which feel like knowing uh, Will's ranking algorithm would have to win for being like 100 page shorter. It, it doesn't hurt. Okay, shortly below that is the resurrection of Rachel Ghoul. That is a couple issues longer. So that in itself is, is a problem. But again, there's more good material in that story than there is here. Yeah, this is just profoundly meh. I mean, there's not a whole lot of like, oh, oh, you know, I can I can cast aside, you know, five and a half issues, but this one half is good. It's, you know, not too many highs, not too many lows, just profoundly mediocre. A, a little further below that is Batman Noel. Is that the one with the really, really good Libra Mayho art? Yes. That has really, really nice really art. This. Nothing yeah. in this is as good as that art. Precisely. I'm thinking it is probably, it's above the Talon stuff at 284. This is still shorter than that. Yeah. And this is better than uh, JLA uh, 5 and 6 Massacre and Grey at 280. Hollywood Nights was weird and not great, but I would I would do Hollywood Nights again before I do this. That's at 277. So below that is Face the Face, which is from uh, your last shot here, Josh. Yeah. That's longer. That is two issues longer. Think face the face is better. Yeah. And below that is the one issue Dead Man Gotham Adventures story. I think this goes right above Massacre in Gray. I think this is the new 280. All right. Fun grammatical fact. There is no difference between among and amongst. Absolutely interchangeable. The English language. But if you use utilize in place of use, I'm going to find you and punch you in the crotch. That's one of those ones that people use to sound smarter. And yes. It's not. No. Use. It's a, it's a wonderful, short three-letter word. It's perfect. It's people who always say something and I, regardless of where it is in the sentence, despite... Me, again, being an important word that has its own proper use. Just because you're saying blank and with yourself does not always mean I needs to go there. That is not correct. Okay. And I, you sure I'm, you don't want to talk more grammar? Okay. This one is on me. I admit freely, this one is on me. Our final story of the night is the Amazo virus. This is Justice League, Volume 2, numbers 35 to 39. The writer is Jeff Johns, with pencils by Doug Monkey, Ivan Reese, and Jason Fabuk. Inks by Keith Champagne, Mark Irwin, Christian Alami, Ray McCarthy, Joe Prado, and Fabuk. Colors by Brad Anderson. Letters by Carlos M. Manguel. Edited by Brian Cunningham and Ariana Turturro, with a cover date of December 2014 to April of 2015. 
An assassination attempt on new Justice League member Lex Luthor has unleashed the Amazo virus, an experimental anti-metahuman viral agent. But as it infects normal humans, it provides them with superpowers before killing them. With the clock ticking, can the League work with Luthor to cure the virus, a virus with a hidden secret Lex does not want revealed? Problematic Creator Watch, Jeff Johns, who is at least racist and sexist when working in Hollywood, probably when working in comics too. So I had a realization about Jeff Johns. I think it, it kind of crystallized for me reading this. And so my hot take is that um, Jeff Johns is the Zack Snyder of comics. Oh! I think he he knows what he's referencing or what he wants it to be. I think a lot of the technical points are there, right? Thinking of particularly uh, Watchmen here, right? Like, hey, and love the concept as a comic book fan. Look, we already have storyboards. Like, we will film this exactly as the comic. But the final result just is missing something. Like, it doesn't elicit the feelings it intends to it's just off and I, I felt this way about john's flash run when he followed wade and i feel it about his justice league here that like he wants this to be the new grant morrison and he's read it all and he kind of knows what's supposed to be there but the pieces together are not the same john's has a similar thing to chris claremont in that john's has characters that he loves and he will use them to the detriment of others. The only thing is Claremont's a better writer. I'm not saying they are on par, but it is that when Claremont writes a story that has Storm in it, it's a story about Storm, regardless of who else is there. Johns loves Lex Luthor. Johns loves Captain Cold. So they become the center of a Justice League story. And, New villains. Right. And that's the whole shtick with the back half of his Justice League run. Is that coming out of Forever Evil, he's basically doing what Marvel did in Secret Invasion. Where there it was Norman Osborn, here it's Lex Luthor. The villain saves the day. And so now the public views them as a hero. Only Marvel never actually treated Osborn like he was a hero. He was always a villain. He was always insane. Here, Johns is really trying to make you wonder if Luthor is really trying to turn over a new leaf. And of course he's not, because he's Lex Luthor. And from the very first page, it's overwritten. And the only small joy I took from this book comes in Luther's very first speech where he says, doo-doo. And I appreciated that. And that's, the again, the only measure of happiness I found in this story. But the whole idea behind the first, you know, action set piece here is that Bruce and Luthor are announcing this partnership so that Bruce can get unfettered access into LexCorp and he's going to walk into the building, and as soon as he finds something incriminating, they're going to slap the, the cuffs on Luthor. Like, that's the whole fucking plan. I'm going to go in the building, and I'm going to find something. Ugh. 
that was so irritating. If you're dealing with a lesser villain, that might work. This is Lex Luthor. He is categorically the smartest man in the DC universe. Do you really think he's stupid enough to leave anything around that Batman could find? Yes, I mean, I don't think Batman is stupid enough to think that. No, there's all of that with the labs and the secret labs and the the spy versus spy shit with Luther lying about lies about lies. And it was so long. Like the pacing on this, I think, is even worse than the other one. Not only because of how long the setup goes through really like, and I'm, I'm assuming we did the the prologue issue as well, mm-hmm. which, but the fact that Johns has to keep doing these Luther monologues that are just like him showing off all the Wikipedia entries he read today make it feel so much fucking longer. It's just confounding when you get to the end in chapter four and they're deep in the fight and there's no winning and the cold keeps freezing, uh, the big patient zero alien, and then um, Superman gives Luther a bloody handshake, cold freezes him one more time, and in one page, it's just over. We just cut to like, post everyone's healing battles over. And it's the resolution comes so fucking fast after everything else taking fucking forever. And nowhere is the fact that cold is this thing's weakness foreshadowed. You got four issues, three issues, where you could have had something to hint at the fact that, oh, boy, I wonder why he charged into this warehouse when the cold storage, the fur warehouse, that was would have been a smoother path, why he avoided that. You could have given any number of hints that cold was this thing's weakness, but no, because you need to have Luthor monologue and you need to have two to three pages of recap at the beginning of every issue. Oh, boy. If this were a comic from 19... 19- 80-something or 90-something where people weren't expecting trades and such? Sure, I expect that. This is the 20-teens. Everything is collected in trade. This is the New 52 where they were absolutely trading everything. You don't need that level of recap in every issue. Why is it there? I mean, this one was... trying to think, like, it felt... So new 52 as well. The Jason Faybuck art was good, serviceable, but it it feels like the not Jim Lee, but he's our model archetype um, house style of the time. It had the, you know, excessive splash pages in places where they didn't really make sense or feel like they, you know, benefited the story. Um, it had... All these kind of like new 52 hallmarks there that like, even if it didn't say it on the the trade, I bought the trade because I found it at Ollie's for $3.99. Nice. That's always the sign of a good book where you can find it at Ollie's. Uh, I found a whole stack of Sean Gordon Murphy's Punk Rock Jesus at uh, Ollie's. I thought this story also did the very least with the idea of Batman getting superpowers. 
the story is wildly inconsistent in how it treats its virus. Like we see a couple of scenes in where the superpowers manifesting themselves is like the harbinger of death. But, you know, Batman gets his and he's like, he's okay. Um, And then everyone becomes zombies to the virus and all some kind of collective consciousness, which, you know, is they don't. Where did the collective consciousness come from? I don't know, man. It was all individualized. Like they went from saying it was random to like, no, it's into their psyches. And each one is an individual manifestation and evolution. And then it's like, nope, hive mind zombies. For the first two issues, this is Outbreak. Two and a half, two and three quarters. And then the last issue and a quarter, it's a zombie story. Again, foreshadowing, the hallmark of good writing. And it can be, I know that's sarcasm, but foreshadowing can be done to death. But at the same time, you also need to lay out your plot beats and set things up. Because if you don't, it's just oh, I got bored with this being a, a, a virus story, so let's just throw in some zombies because we need, superheroes need to punch something. Yeah, and and again, not just any zombies, but like Borgified hive mind zombies. Having lived through a pandemic, I thought it was especially stupid uh, and how it treated like the evolution of the pandemic, right? We see the escape of the virus at the conclusion of the prologue and then next we jump to 24 hours later, it's a pandemic hellscape. And, you know, we've already got quarantine centers and, uh, you know, medical bases establishing. Look. It's post-apocalyptic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We lived through that. We saw that there's no way the government functions that quickly. And so I'm like, good try, real dumb. That being a 24-hour time skip. This is about when regardless of how much longer he's with DC, this is about when John starts to check out. This came out on time. This was five issues over five months. But the next 10 issues of Justice League take like 14 or 15 months. This is when John stops releasing things on time because he's starting to do all the Hollywood stuff for DC. And I mean, fan wise, this was the point in all the comic shops where everyone was like, Jeff Johns is still he's our top writer at DC, like Scott Snyder, like we can't get Scott Snyder doing like we still have to let Jeff Johns do all the Justice Leagues and crossovers and like, shouldn't Scott Snyder be next for any of these things? And pretty soon he was because Johns had lost interest. But, but yeah, this was, you know, they were definitely a year or two behind on that because the fans were ready for the next thing. And John sets up a whole bunch of threads at the end of this that never pay off. Oh, the... oh, oh, you mean he was trying to set up this new villain? I'm stunning. Well, yeah, trying to make uh, the biological Amazo, which never goes anywhere. There's a one-panel cameo that hints of Amos Fortune, who is a Silver Age Justice League villain, who never really shows up. The 3% of this whole new generation of metahumans that is never addressed again. That was actually a cool concept if they had actually followed up on that. Yes. Oh, yeah, that was a decent idea. You could have had little bits of that popping up all over the DC universe. But we're, despite the new 52 still going on for another year after the end of this, 
this is the sort of the beginning of the death knell of the new 52. They were guiding it towards the conclusion after this. But specifically at the beginning, they're saying that the virus has three phases where you get the flu, you get a superpower, and then your body shuts down all in the course of 24 hours. Well, for Batman, it was over the course of like three panels. Yeah. He doesn't go through phase one. He had like a sonar blast and then he fell over. Yeah. The only moment in this entire story that I enjoyed was at the very beginning. When Lex Luthor said doo-doo. Well, a little after that, where Luthor gives this whole speech and everyone applauds. And then Bruce goes up and gives this pretty hackneyed, you know, about, you know, his parents making his parents proud. It's intentionally hacky and tug on your emotions basically for him to fuck over Luthor to make like Luthor's big human speech does it it lessens the impact of it because Bruce actually demonstrated emotion if there's any moment where Bruce is allowed to be a little petty it's screwing with Lex Luthor in public and not letting Luthor get away with it it's like okay I appreciate that little moment for Bruce there Looking through the art again, I would say that, you know, when we hit the superhero action-y pieces, right, Faye Buck does a really great job. When we get to uh, facial expressions, like, I'm not no, sure never actually they do not work humans before. Um, the facial expressions are no bueno. And I think there's a combination there. The fact that, you know, you're not reading or getting good emotion off the faces of the characters in the quieter scenes and also that john doesn't take time to develop or give you there is no heart of this story there is no character to care about i think john assumes we care about the stakes because he made them the stakes but something about like the setup of this made me think of the recent uh kieran gillen uh, avengers x-men eternals crossover judgment day where Gillen sets up these six humans that are caught in the crosshairs of it. And, you know, you come back to them every so often, every half an issue or so, and you're seeing them progress and how it affects them. And, you know, it's got beautiful art. So even if you're only getting them for one panel each, you know, you're getting a lot of emotion in there. And it it gives you human stakes that you care about as the story progresses. And, and that really pay off in the end. And there was no investment in human stakes or there was nothing to attach to or care about in this. Nobody at risk were made to care about or feel as worth saving. There's no heart in the story at all. And we didn't even have any good body horror. What a bummer. But it does introduce a new super assassin called The Bullet who never appears again and does not even have a DC wiki page. Of course not. And I sit back and I look at that character and I'm like, couldn't he use Deathstroke, Deadshot, Deadline, Bolt? KG Beast. KG Beast. Any number. The DC universe is lousy with killers for hire. Why introduce this random character? It feels like the stakes are lower when you're using a character who is so clearly disposable. 
Did we even get the payoff to that mystery, or did I just not care when we got it? It's paid off in the next arc. Ah. Yeah, it's Lena. It's Luthor's sister who's trying to have him killed. Oh, shocking. Yeah, exactly. It is not at all surprising. That is not paid off in this. That is paid off in the middle of the Dark Side War. I really have to figure out which writer made me love Jessica Cruz. Because I love Jessica Cruz. And John's created her in this arc, but there's nothing here to make me care about this character. So I can't re- I can't remember who it was writing that character that made me really love that character because I got uh, back here and it's like, oh, who who's who wrote uh, Green Lanterns? It was one of your uh, one of your people, Matt. I know my favorite run on that was Tim Seeley, who was later on, but um, Sam Humphreys or Robert Vendetta? Sam Humphreys. Okay. Humphreys. That, that's when I really remember enjoying Jessica Cruz. Yeah. He's a fine writer. That's when that character kind of comes into her own. Because otherwise, John's... Humphreys did a tremendous job at Velvet and Jessica Cruz over those first two arcs, two, three arcs. Yeah. Um, Green Lanterns. In retrospect, I wish I had dug deeper because there are any number of other stories where Batman gets superpowers. This is the first one that came to mind, and I just kind of threw it in there, and it's like, oh, I regret this now. And we're also, this is still New 52 Superman, who's not as human as Superman should be written. That was the the problem with that iteration of Superman. They were really going for Stranger in a Strange Land Superman, which that's what you got Martian Manhunter for. Superman is the most human of all of us, and that's kind of the point. He's gonna die real soon. Oh yeah, yeah. He's he's got about a he's got about a year left. Oh, that new fifty two finale that crossed over Superman, Batman, and uh, Action Comics, and Superman one like that. That's one that you one you'll have to do one day. Yeah, there is. I don't remember what it was. It wasn't called The Death of Superman because that was a much better story. Yes. Um, I remember that. And yeah. It was like issues 51 and 52 of four of the series. It was like the wrap up of four of them. I don't remember what it's called. Yeah. But if only I had like all of the world's the, knowledge. I think um, the the last days of I Superman. Was that it? Maybe the last days of Superman. I think that sounds right. But yeah, this is. This is not good. No. This again, five issues that should have been three or could have been five if it were paced in a way that justified five issues. If it had stayed with the pandemic theme, if it had really slowed down to explore like each one of these steps in the virus, if it had bothered to be interesting... If you had a quarantined city where suddenly everyone was getting superpowers, there's a great concept for a story right there. It's a little bit George R. R. Martin's wild cards. There's any number of stories where that could work, but John's just wants to have these big fight scenes and then zombies at the end. And the zombie thing really feels like he wrote himself into a corner and so now needed to change what he was doing. And it was like, 
uh, zombies. Yeah, can't have all these people dying. Just the more we keep talking about the change from, you know, outbreak to zombies makes me think of the uh, the community, the, the season two paintball one, where the first episode's a Western and then the second episode starts and they're like, wait, are we doing a Western? Nope, we're doing Star Wars now. Yes. Oh, I love that. Are we doing an outbreak? Nope, we're doing zombies now. Yep, my bad. Okay, you'll be better tomorrow. Let, let's let's just get this taken care of, shall we? Matt's resignation means it's time to play Justice League 35-39, the Mesovirus on the big board. Well, we're definitely in the 300s here. Barely above this was dog shit awful. Kind of in the neighborhood of that really bad Legends of the Dark Knight Arrow and the Bat one that I picked for us. Yeah, that's year. right around the neighborhood where the hunt for Harley Quinn is, too. So that is our neighborhood of New 52 stories that are not great. I I, I will say, I think this is better than Spawn Batman, because there are a couple of interesting ideas in here. I mean, nothing pays off, but it's not just a mess from start to finish. I can give you that. Right above I don't that, know how much higher I'd go than Spawn Batman at 315. Yeah. Right above that is Deface the Face from the last time you were on Josh, that second James Robinson two-face with the cult of Cobra. It read quicker. It did. There were no Wikipedia entries. Right. The only overdone bit specifically there was the like let's have three pages giving you the entire history of the cult of cobra which you didn't really need for that story because cobra was incidental it did remember to use duke thomas and it did remember to use duke thomas as the day guy which so many things forget right above spawn batman right above spawn batman there we go yeah, because I'm looking above that, and you have a bunch of Golden Age first appearances, and it, it, it can't top any of those. All right, Josh, your goal for next time, pick a story that cracks the top 50. That's your homework. Thank you, as ever, Josh. We really do, of course, appreciate your time. But that is it for this week. Next week, we're doing three early 90s short crossovers, Back from when there were only three bat books, if you can believe that. We would like to thank our Patreon backers, Dan Grove, Josh Wheel, Mrs. Abigail Hartbaum, mm. Asimov Fangirl, Tony Thornley, Go Utes, Sam Hopper, John Wickham, Robert Secundus, Bobby Two Bucks, Tim Rooney, Giorgio Sragioli, David Wheel, Alexander Wheel, and Matt McThorne for this McThorny! You can follow this podcast on Twitter for at least a little bit longer at Batchat Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music slash Audible, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon at Patreon.com slash Batchat with Matt and Will, where you can get shoutouts, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLast1013. And I'm at Will Nevin, and I'll be on Twitter until I die. Good night, Huntsville. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat roundup of new Bat books. 
For my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend, Dan Grote, and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark.